I feel my caster rising <laughs> higher and higher. It's parted through to my cast. Cause your kisses lift me higher. Like the sweet song of a choir. You light my morning sky with podcast love. <laughs> I'm just a hunk of hunk of podcast love. <laughs> Don't worry, everyone. That terrible impression has left the building. (laughs) I can't think of anything else to say. Let's start the show. Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello. How? <laughs> and we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Maria Oak Studios. Thanks for all the. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. Thanks for all the work that you do. You're vile, you're foul, you're flawed, but also cute and fluffy. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's experimental era with 2002's Lilo and Stitch, directed by Chris Sanders and Dean Dubois. Dean Dubois. It's hard to say it, but that's basically what they said on the things I watched, so... When I go to Cane's, I like to order some Dean DeSlaw as a side dish. <laughs> so here we are, Lilo and Stitch. Mom, what does this movie mean to you? I really like this one since the first time I saw it. This is one of the few movies I've seen that made me uh, cry a little. I wouldn't say right at the end because it's the parts where you think Lilo's going to get taken away from Nani. So some when... Lilo's put in Cobra Bubbles' car, and then again when Lilo's getting flown off in Gantu's ship, and Nani is like breaking down and crying because she thinks she's lost Lilo forever. Makes me want to cry too. I was thinking about it, probably one of the reasons why this movie connected with me so much, at least in that part, is you were about Lilo's age when this movie first came out. You were a little bit younger because Lilo's only six. Um, and turned seven right at the end. And you were not quite six when this movie came out. So it probably felt, you know, now my babies. <laughs> it's somewhat a movie about motherhood. I mean, it's about it's about family and family connections and parent sort of, you know, Nani's her sister's guardian, which isn't the same as her mother. But, you know, it's still fa- the idea of family getting broken up is heartbreaking, especially when you've got little kids. It really is. Watching it this time, you could make an argument this is the darkest Disney movie. In some ways. In some ways, yeah. I I might say the most effective dark Disney movie because uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame is probably the darkest, Mm -hmm. but as we talked about, it's almost a little too much. This one and Lion King, Mm -hmm. they really get the balance between being like a Disney movie and doing all the Disney movie things and having some real darkness and real sadness right, I think. Yeah, but yeah, I, uh, I I have also loved this movie since I was uh, younger than Lilo. Apparently, <laughs> this is my favorite of the experimental era. I think this one and Emperor's New Groove are the peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this one is a better, more interesting, more complex movie, even though Emperor's New Groove is, you know, laugh a minute. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. And I really had 
quite a bit of fondness for the spinoffs as well. Yeah. To some extent, as a kid, we definitely watched all of the direct-to-video sequels, all three of them. So much so that, I mean, I'll talk about this stuff later, of course, but I actually, like, watching the second movie in this franchise, the first sequel, which is called Stitch the Movie, except there's an exclamation point after Stitch, so it's actually Stitch the Movie. <laughs> watching Stitch the Movie, I was like, like, I remembered shots, you know, when you have that much of a memory of something. Like, you remember scenes, you remember compositions. Yep. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Why do I remember this? But and I definitely had a coloring book for this. Like, this, this was a big deal and I've always really liked it I hadn't watched it in a long time I'm not sure how long but it had been quite some time but I know you guys had watched it a lot because when I took out my DVD to look at it and see if there was any interesting special features on there I was like "Ooh, I hope this DVD works looks a little scratched oh yeah that's the thing (laughs) I I don't know if I've watched this movie since I was a kid but I watched it 200 times as a kid so I still remembered it almost beat for beat you know like I could never watch this movie again and I'll I'll still remember it but it's a, it's a real treat. It's a real charmer. It's very emotionally complex in a way that Disney movies had not been before this. And frankly, I think would never be again. Also space aliens. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it also, it's very weird. It's very specific. The mix of like, okay, this very serious family drama playing out amidst space aliens and a lot of humor And like the fact that it's in Hawaii, the use of Elvis and Elvis songs throughout. Like, again, it's a it's a fascinating mix that does like coalesce into a totally functional movie. Like, I was really thinking about that watching it this time. It's like it's amazing that you're with this movie in every scene and you're following it despite the, you know, kind of complex like backstory and mythology that you have to understand. Yeah. And yet it it totally functions as, you know, a classic Disney movie. Like as a kid, I I was with it, too. You know, there's certainly more nuance that you don't get till you're older. But uh, it's funny. It was making me think about how when we were describing the original idea for what became Emperor's New Groove and going, how could you even make this into a logical movie? But if you think about if you describe the several things going on in this one, it sounds like it would be a mess too, but it works. It absolutely does. But as I understand, this movie worked in part because it was a passion project for Chris Sanders and very much like it took a long time to make in the sense that, you know, he was thinking about it for a long time and kind of working on it in the background. But I didn't do really any of the research this week because I had 700 (laughs) spinoffs. To watch. So, Mom, why don't you take us through the history of this here film? Well, as you said, it did start out originally as kind of an idea Chris Sanders had back in the 80s for a children's book, but it never really worked out. He'd basically written a story about an alien named Stitch who was living in some isolated like forest and none of the other creatures and animals of the forest liked him or could get along with him. I don't know, like where the rest of the plot went to, you know, there, there, I'm assuming there was some sort of resolution, but you know, they never found anything that explained the whole thing because apparently it was bad. (laughs) The point is it wasn't good. Fast forward a few years till they're finishing up Mulan and a bunch of the Disney leadership gets together and is like, what are we doing for our next thing? 
And basically, I can't figure out whose idea it was because everything I found said someone else. But what I basically got is at this retreat where there was a whole bunch of the leadership, right? Eisner and Schumacher and Schneider and several of the other people, they decided what they needed to do was something less expensive. You know, we've been doing these bigger, bigger budget movies and, you know, very expansive, a lot going on. Something I saw said it was Roy who was like, we need to do like, you know, they did the expensive, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia, and then they did cheap Dumbo. (laughs) So that was the basic idea was let's do something that'll still be a great movie, but we don't have to spend as much money on it. And so Schumacher, I believe, basically then went to Chris Sanders, who was one of the lead storyboard artists at Disney. He was, you know, one of the lead story guys at the time. You know, he'd worked a lot on Mulan. And we talked about his contributions to The Lion King. He was one of the people who saved that movie. Right. So he he had gotten into the story department and was a big guy there. And basically, Schumacher went to him and was like, I need you to come up with a story that fits these parameters. Like we need we need something that we can do less expensive but will still be a good Disney movie. Basically, he passed the buck. I felt like onto him. It's like, here's our idea. Now you get to come up with a story for it. And so Chris Sanders, again, had had this idea for Stitch and thought he could tr- had could turn it into a movie, had already kind of been playing around with a pitch for doing it as an animated movie. So he went and got Dean DeBlois, who he'd worked with before as well. And they basically hammered out a, in a story pitch, he'd done like a pitch book, which was, you know, drawings with the story like a picture book. And he presented that and they loved the way his art looked with the story so much that they basically said, OK, we're going to do it, but we're going to use your art style. <laughs> and so then they had to figure out, OK, how do we tell everybody, you know, teach everybody how to draw in your art style? Very rounded edges. Everything's a little bit bottom heavy, very curved. I never really thought about how everything in this movie is curved. You know, think about her camera. You know, mostly cameras are boxes with corners and hers is like chunky. They were describing it as basically think about if you inflated everything just a little bit. (laughs) It does. It has a super unique art style, helped in part by those beautiful watercolor backgrounds, of course. Right. They also decided they were going to do with the watercolor backgrounds because they thought it would really fit the look they wanted for the movie. And they ha- those hadn't been done since Dumbo either. You know, as we know about Walt, once he perfected a technique, he basically was like, well, what's the next step? What's the next thing? We, we do these great watercolor backgrounds. Let's move on to oils. <laughs> yeah. How can we make those look good? And so all the animators were like, watercolor, that's going to be really tough, right? Um, And so they actually had to learn how to do the watercolor backgrounds and do them right. Because the main thing about watercolor is you can't just paint over it. If you're painting with oils and you make a mistake, you can just slap more paint on. (laughs) Right. But not with watercolors. No, but it gives it that picture book quality you're talking about. Oh, it really does. So I know for a while this movie wasn't going to be set in Hawaii. True. It doesn't seem like it was for very long. They wanted it to be in an isolated location because the idea is that, you know, Stitch wants to do all his destruction or whatever, but can't do a lot because he's in an isolated location. So for a while they were going to set it in Kansas, but it doesn't seem like it was very long before they decided to set it in Hawaii. 
I couldn't find any art or storyboarding they'd done to set it in Kansas. That was part of just the original idea. But yeah, it, it is funny that it was potentially once going to be in Kansas. But putting it in Hawaii really changed a ton of what they did about the movie. And you wouldn't have had that whole Ohana means family thing if you'd had it in Kansas. Yeah, putting it in Kansas would have been horrible, partially because Kansas is a cultureless, textureless wasteland <laughs> and Hawaii is a gorgeous, fascinating location. Right. It also just doesn't make sense, though. We were we were talking about like if they had said it in Kansas, like there's major cities very much within walking distance for Stitch. <laughs> right. Whereas in this, you get that hilarious sequence of them driving to the edges of the island. Yep. <laughs> Isn't it great to live on an island with no major cities? <laughs> it's so good. It is so good. So I'm really glad they decided to do that. And it's just so much of this movie, you know, when we get into the synopsis, so much of it, like they have to communicate ideas very, very quickly and explain right. things very, very quickly because there's so much to get across in this short, cheap movie. Yeah. So like if it had been in Kansas, you'd be like, well, wait, why can't he go to a major city? And you'd really have to work extra hard to justify it rather than just saying Stitch can't swim. It's an island. Right. The end. Right. Period. <laughs> it's true. Don't think about why he can't get on a boat or anything. It's done. <laughs> Hand wave a few of those details and you're all good. Of course, they did go visit Hawaii and get a lot of inspiration there. This movie, of course, went to the Florida animation studio. They were going to do it there like they did Mulan. Our heroes, the Florida animation studio. It's true. And Chris and Dean talked about how it felt like they were, you know, so far away, of course, from the California group and team and everybody that it felt like they could be sneaking this movie in under the radar, you know, <laughs> because the, you know, the high mucky mucks weren't there all the time. They would be able to just give, you know, basic summaries. Yeah, everything's going like this. We've got this much done. And they didn't have people popping in all the time to see how it was going because it's a smaller animation studio. They felt like a you know much more tight knit family. Everybody there was working on Lilo and Stitch, not like how at the California Animation Studio where you've got several movies going on at once. Right, and not like uh, Tarzan. <laughs> so what you're saying is maybe having a single vision and a single team working on something. It actually kind of works pretty well, yeah. Rather than three teams communicating by carrier pigeon. <laughs> yeah. So having everybody in one place and only working on one thing seems to have been a very good idea. Uh, apparently, uh, Dean DeBlois wasn't super excited to be there because he's like, you can actually you know, hear people screaming from the rides because, as we've mentioned before, the Florida Animation Studio was originally basically an attraction at Disney MGM Studios. And it wasn't even supposed to originally be a functioning animation studio. And then they were like, you know what? We need actually more animators. So they were like, we've got this setup. It's going to be real animators, as we'd already mentioned. But it worked. And one of the things I hadn't ever known before, pretty much all of the tourists you see watch, walking around on the beaches and stuff are people who walked by looking at the animators and at that attraction. <laughs> That's funny. It's even more funny knowing about that deleted scene where Lilo like pranks all the tourists. <laughs> it's true. So there's this famous deleted scene where basically these tourists are being racist to Lilo, these white tourists. 
And so she pranks them. She makes them think they're all going to die because they're testing the tsunami alarm. They're testing the tsunami alarm, but she makes them think it's a real tsunami. Yep. It's a scene that a lot of people are like, oh, why didn't they put this in the movie? I think it's a little too much. I think it would have been one thing too many. And it's kind of mean spirited, even for Lilo. Right. And so I wonder if that's because they were sick of being gawked at by all the (laughs) tourists. (laughs) So they made this mean scene about them. Apparently, they got a lot of good inspiration from all those tourists. So, (laughs) but yeah, that's that is my understanding as well, is that basically as long as they kept this movie under budget, they could kind of do whatever they want. Yeah. And they had a lot of story changes they had to go through, of course, as these movies always have. One of the major ones they had to do that nobody even asked, how much is this big change going to cost? The end of the movie, when there's the spaceship chase, was actually going to be a 747 aircraft chase that Stitch was going to basically hijack. And then they were going to fly it through the, you know, only city there is on Kauai. And, you know, there wasn't going to be any like flying into buildings. But September 11th happened in 2001 and this movie was coming out in 2002 and they were like, As soon as they found out that day, like the third thought everybody working on this movie had after, you know, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is happening was we have to change that sequence in Lilo and Stitch. (laughs) Yep. And so they CGI'd the the spaceship over the plane. Right. Because it was going to be a CGI model plane anyway. So they basically just went in and tweaked the model. You know, they changed the shape of it, stretched it out somewhat, made it, gave it some curves, took away some of the engine, you know, gave it a paint job and made it a weird, funky shape. And then instead of flying through the city, now they're flying through the mountains. Right. But it's interesting knowing that because it does look very plane It right. clearly has jumbo jets. And there's one moment in particular when they're flying alongside the cliff. Now you say they changed the setting. So maybe this wasn't I swear when it's flying on the cliff that shadow does not look like the shadow of the spaceship it looks like a shadow of a plane well they might not have changed all the shadows because there weren't going to be times when it was flying right by buildings there was even one shot I don't know if you looked at the deleted scene where they had put the wheels out and were like driving along the side of a big glass building (laughs) right my suspicion is that's a reused piece of animation but like you have to know what the scene was and be really looking about it and thinking about it you know right it's fine (laughs) and they did get alan silvestri to do the score he was like their first second and third picks because chris sanders is a huge alan silvestri fan (laughs) and he was like i really need you know they really needed someone who could do you know the epic action music plus all of the heartwarming music for the other parts and they were actually using music by Silvestri for their temps tracks for <laughs> as they were putting stuff together. So they were really glad to get him. And he worked with Mark Kealii Ho'omalu to write the songs in Hawaiian, the Hawaiian songs. He is the leader of a hula school, a very well-respected hula master and he helped write the those songs and of course they also got hawaiian children's choir the kamehameha school children's choir to sing on those 
And then they decided to include Elvis music, too, because <laughs> Sanders really likes Elvis. Which I feel like had to be a huge chunk of the budget licensing Elvis songs. I mean, I don't know, but one wonders. I don't know. I mean, they did. You know, they talked about how they had to go get permission. They had to get permission to use his songs, to use his likeness, because there's she holds up that photo of Elvis that time. And to they actually had to tweak some of the recordings a little bit to make them fit better with the animation. So they had to get a lot of permissions. I don't know how much it cost. They also three of the Elvis songs are covers, which I'm sure helps. Yeah. Rather than licensing the original recording. But yeah, yeah. but four of them are Elvis songs. (laughs) I mean, Elvis singing his own songs. Yes. Yeah, I really like the score of this movie. I know we're saying that every week. Guess what? We're going to say it next week, too. (laughs) There's a lot of good scores in this chunk of time. There really is. I feel like that's one thing they kept from the Renaissance, even though they were so ludicrously anti-song. For a movie that's not a musical, this one has a ton of music in it. Music is a huge part of it. You got to have songs. You got to have songs. You're right. It's like the characters don't stop and burst into song, but it does use songs well and of course there is one moment where a character sings and it's the most powerful moment in the whole movie yeah (laughs) it is so they they understand the importance of songs to this kind of storytelling yeah as opposed to tarzan which is like i don't know pay some guy to write songs and then just chuck them in there (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure this movie was extremely popular made a lot of money i didn't check to how much it made compared to like previous or movies but i know it made up its budget and then some (laughs) that's the thing it's not that this movie made a ton more money than a lot of the other disney movies at this time but it cost a lot less yeah and of course it had much more staying power so this is the only movie in the experimental era that made its budget back Mm -hmm. post dinosaur i should say as we said in that episode because tarzan made bank Mm, that's true and of course uh this movie is beloved and again it spawned the most spin-offs we've had to talk about since winnie the pooh it is it's true it's truly insane and i i can't wait to talk about it but let's go through the cast of this movie all right so first we have director chris sanders also doing the voice of stitch it was just one of those things that They first weren't going to have Stitch talk at all. And then they were like, oh, we are going to have to have him make some little noises or talk a little bit. And so Chris Sanders was doing a voice track just for like a scratch track. You know, here's some until we get a voice actor to do it. And everybody was like, you know what? We really like what you're doing. He apparently just used that silly voice with somebody he knew. Like this was his silly voice he talked to this person with. And this was his first chance to be a director. Also, Dean's first chance to be a director and their producer's first chance to be a producer. So (laughs) that also might have helped make it such a unique movie. He also is going to go on to direct How to Train Your Dragon along with um, Dean DeBlois. Which is, I think, the best DreamWorks movie. Maybe Prince of Egypt, but it's, it's one of the best for sure. It's true. And I, I do think it's funny that even when he, you know, started working for DreamWorks uh, and has mostly, I think, continued to work for DreamWorks since he did The Croods, which I'll never watch ever. <laughs> he still is the voice of Stitch in everything. I don't know if they had some kind of ironclad contract or 
what that he had to be the voice forever. But I love that, you know, he's he's fully defected to the other side. He's still collecting big checks from the TV show, from being in the park rides <laughs> for a voice that anyone can do. I think he just likes doing it and they like having him do it. Uh, I'm not sure if you say her name Deve or Devi Chase as Lilo. She was a, a child actress at the time. She did Lilo's voice for all the U.S. things until 2006 when she'd have been close to 16. So apparently she could still do Lilo's voice even as she got older. You could tell. In fact, yeah. I thought it was different actresses watching all of these. Apparently it's all her. It's just one actress getting older. Yeah. She's been in a few movies, but nothing I really have seen. Tia Carrera as Nani, her big sister. She's actually a Hawaiian actress. And she's had some minor roles in other things. The only thing I really recognize is she had a, a role in a couple of episodes of Warehouse 13 <laughs> that your dad and I watched. Yeah, all of the actors came back for all of the spinoffs. It's true. They did. Which is one of, I think they realized that's one of the plus sides of hiring mostly voice actors uh-huh. is like, you know, well, these guys are here anyway, like they'll do the TV show. And you mentioned this guy was a surprise. It's David Ogden Stiers again as Jumba. I it's true. I was surprised. I until I looked it up, I, I did not realize it was him at all. And I'm going to say I've been thinking about this. I'm ready to drop a hot take. I think Jumba is his best performance. <laughs> I love Cogsworth. I love some of the other Disney roles he's done. But this he has to be genuinely scary, especially at the beginning, like a genuine threat of genuine evil. Maybe scary is not the right word, but like you believe that this guy is dangerous. And even later on, you know, I'll do it my way. But he can't be too dangerous. He still has to be a little funny Mm -hmm. so that he can be a good guy at the end and so that he's not ruining the tone of the movie, you know, and he has the silly accent like he's he's funny. It's it's and yet he kind of loves his creation, but he also kind of can't see as a person like. Right. It's a very careful needle to thread and he does it really well. And I'll also say I think he is the most consistently good part of all the spinoffs. I think Jumba continues to be great, even when those <laughs> movies and TV shows are pretty bad. It's probably of all of his roles for Disney, the one he's done the most with all the different spinoffs and things. Definitely. Even Cogsworth doesn't get that much. And Cogsworth gets, you know, four lines of movie or whatever. Jumba's doing crazed monologues. Kevin McDonald as Pleakley. He's done a lot of TV, some voice work. He was in that comedy show Kids and the Kids in the Hall which I haven't watched much of, but only a little. He also does a voice in Wander Over Yonder that we've oh, interesting. watched kind of recently on Disney+. Plus. He's the Sherblord King. I don't know if you can remember which character that is of the many random characters. I think so. He's he's just that little whatever dopey character who's around. Yeah, I, I, that's what I was thinking, but I thought that was pretty funny. He's good in this. He's fine. He's doing his thing. Yep. Pleakley, on the other hand, I think becomes very annoying in the spinoffs, but I don't think it's his fault. Yeah, it is kind of an annoying voice to listen to after a while. Yeah, that's the thing. Pleakley, he's a heavy spice. Like so many things in this movie, this movie's perfectly in balance. The spinoffs are not. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Ving Rhames as Cobra Bubbles. 
which is just a great name. I just love his name. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. He's in all the Mission Impossible movies as Luther Stickle, which is mostly what I remember seeing him in. And the other movies I've seen him in, he's doing a role almost like that. Yeah, he's he's a very deep voiced man here to have a very deep voice. Apparently, the originally the social worker was actually going to be a scrawny man, somebody that Lilo was basically going to be like fooling and tricking and getting away from and, you know, getting one up on all the time. And they were like, no, this isn't working. And so then Andreas Deja, our friend, (laughs) character designer, designed what he called the scariest social worker he could think of. (laughs) The most extreme. No, it's a really good fit, especially because like if it's someone who's like lame and being bullied, like we already have Pleakley. Exactly. Let's see. Kevin Michael Richardson as Captain Gantu. He's yet another prolific voice actor. Yet another deep voiced man. Yes. Another deep voiced man doing all the deep voices. He's on that Hercules TV series as Hephaestus. If you say so. (laughs) He was several voices on Wander Over Yonder. I didn't like write them all down. But need a deep voice for a character? You need him. He's done a lot of Jabba the Hutt on video games and more recent TV shows for Star Wars. But probably one of the places I've heard his voice the most is Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds, the video game where he does the voice of Boss Nass and the Rebel Trooper. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have we've played that game a lot. That game is on constant rotation in our family. It's true. And your dad plays it like solitaire all the time. Holy crap, though. You're right. I can totally hear that that uh, that the rebel trooper is just Gantu. It's the same voice. Right. That's wild. (laughs) It's a very specific reference, but it's wild. Yep. Zoe Caldwell as the grand councilwoman. I think she's a magnificent voice for this part. She's just got such a great, great voice. Really, the only thing I had seen her in as an actress is um, a TV movie called Lantern Hill based on the L.M. Montgomery book, Jane of Lantern Hill. I don't even know if you've seen that. Something I saw mostly as a kid and quite enjoyed where she plays the grandmother. She's a grandmother in several things. (laughs) And then we have Jason Scott Lee as David, another Hawaiian actor who, along with Tia Carrera, they basically kind of helped workshop the dialogue for their characters to make it more authentic, right? The way that they are able to use the slang and things they would say, and they were able to say, you know what? Hawaiian people aren't going to talk like this, or here's what we would say instead. Um, And I think that really helps. You're saying that hiring actors from the culture makes the movie better? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Fascinating. Interesting. He's actually (laughs) been in several, a couple of live action Disney things. He played Bori Khan in the Mulan Delarm, and he was Mowgli in the 1994 Jungle Book live action movie. Yep. The one I didn't see. Still haven't. (laughs) Yep. Heard it's good. Grandma Becky said it was good. But uh, haven't pulled the trigger. I think I'm still too scarred for Mowgli's story. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one where Mowgli is an adult and not a child. Yeah, that's the one that's like Stephen Summers directed, I believe. That that, that that 94 one he's in is probably good. Surprisingly, this movie gets by without Welker, but then in the spinoffs, he's all over those things. Because, it's true. Among other things, he does the voices of 
every other experiment <laughs> that is in Stitch. Or there's like a couple experiments with female voices. And of course, there's the Rob Paulson one that's just Rob Paulson. But he listen. You paid Wilker his price eventually. <laughs> you thought you could get away with it, Chris Sanders. It's true. There aren't a lot of places for animal noises. He could have done the frog, maybe. It's true. Maybe he's uncredited as the frog. <laughs> I don't think I saw anybody listed as having voiced the frog. Listen, it's Wilker until proven guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shall we talk about this film? Yeah. This one has a funny permutation of the Disney logo. Yep. It's another kind of... Space alieny. <laughs> yes. It's the thing they're doing. Because it's a very simple design of a logo and therefore very easy to transmute into other things, unlike that horrendous new CGI guy. Okay, whatever. I'll get off this soapbox. <laughs> we have a movie to talk about. When I was a kid, because I was so into science fiction. Yep. My favorite part of this movie was all this opening stuff that is just pure sci-fi. I loved all these alien designs. The Galactic Federation. All the Galactic... Listen, if you have a Galactic Federation, I am there, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And I read that, like, they really tried to design the ships and the aliens to have underwater type features, like fish-like features and underwater creatures which gives it, again, this very unique look. They also had the alien language for this, which is just a, a substitution cipher, I believe. Yeah, it isn't anything fancy like Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, because Atlantis had all the money. <laughs> and also because it was a waste of time. <laughs> it's for nothing. But like that's all over the parks and stuff, and it's it gives it a unique look, like when you see the ships with that writing on the outside. I, I love the ship design in this. I love the alien design in this because it does look truly alien while still fitting into the art style of this movie. I really appreciate that the aliens don't just look like people in suits. Exactly. You have the the extreme height variation between so many of them. Gantu is gigantic and he's got like a lieutenant or a sergeant or something who's smaller, you know, the size of Stitch. And even the difference between Pleakley and Jumba and the fact that, you know, Jumba's got four eyes, Pleakley only has one, but he's got two tongues. Yes. <laughs> and I think three legs. Yes, he has three legs. You know, it's just fun that because it's animation, you can just have your aliens all looking so different. And it establishes this whole sci-fi world in like, I didn't time check this because for once I was too busy enjoying the movie. Imagine <laughs> that. Yeah. But like, it's got to be like five minutes or so, you know? At and again, least it feels like it's definitely a, a decent chunk there at the beginning. But it's not that long. And we yeah. never come back, like we never go back into space. Obviously all this stuff is important to the movie, But again, you feel like you have a sense of this whole situation, uh, whole civilization, rather. There's so many great little details like, you know, the the robot throwing up (laughs) at the horrendous cursing. This movie opens with an alien court case and it's like fun and exciting. And Dr. Jumba is an evil mad scientist. There are a lot of potential villains in this movie. I wouldn't say that there's one overall villain. But there are several people who are either bad and become good. (laughs) This this again, this movie is a little too emotionally complex to just have your classic cackling maniac. But as much as that exists, it is Gantu. Gantu's pretty much bad for the whole movie. He is. But if for the cackling, you have to go to Jumba. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> He's your and, and for the and scientist. for the mania, exactly. Yes. He's like, I prefer evil genius. <laughs> Whereas Gantu is famously a stupid head. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, it goes into this cool action scene with these dinosaur aliens who, again, we don't see again. They're just here to wonderfully spice up this one scene. And like the whole bit where you know with the dna guns and yes, the cleverness so of funny. stitch figuring that out and then the action of you know him picking up the shields and they're firing on him like again this is just a great science fiction short film it is and of course he does escape he's been sentenced to live on a desert asteroid because he's you know too dangerous to let live i didn't write down what jumba says he wants like his programming is designing him to do but it's like he's gonna destroy head for the largest population centers and mess up the street signs and steal everybody's left shoe and i forget what the other thing is oh flood the sewers and originally in this scene they actually had uh like they were showing here's his crimes and he had done that all on other planets yeah but no it's it's better (laughs) if he hasn't done any of that it is it's better if you haven't seen any of that yet you just you know Find it all out as you go. And of course, you know, with Stitch is escaping, he steals the red police cruiser. Why do they have a red one? (laughs) (laughs) And I I wanted to say, uh, well, I mean, of course, the reason they have a red one is because, again, there's I totally forgot. There's this awesome action beat where he's dive bombing a hundred thousand police space cruisers. Oh, yeah. This sequence is so cool. It is. I don't know that it's my favorite sequence now, but I had a hard time deciding because there's like eight (laughs) that I could pick. We should say the advertising campaign for this movie, which did prominently feature the red cruiser that I think is great. I think it's brilliant. I wish Disney would do more stuff like this today instead of just here's a trailer that tells you the entire movie. (laughs) But what they had was scenes from Disney Renaissance films that Stitch would interrupt and mess with in some way. And they actually had the original voice actors for the characters come back and do new lines reacting to Stitch. Yeah. So, you know, there's the magic carpet ride where he steals Jasmine because he can show her an even more new world. Yep. And it's not that he steals her. It's that he pulls up alongside the carpet, flirts with (laughs) her, and she's like, ooh, and she goes with him. That's the weirdest one, by that the is way. The weirdest that, one. that one's kind of messed up. But. <laughs> I did see on the making of video that I watched, they had a, a section where they were talking about those. They did scenes from Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, and Lion King. And when they had the voice actors come in to record their other lines and they would explain what's going on, and the you know, the people working on the Lilo and Stitch stuff are like we got this hilarious trailer we want you to be a part of and they would explain it and the voice actors would be like you want me to get mad <laughs> <laughs> right they're like so the the bit with this new character of the new movie is he sucks and everyone hates him and, they, and, and they're like yes isn't that hilarious <laughs> it is even the poster for this movie or one of the posters uh the one that's on wikipedia is just all the other Disney characters all the way back to the Seven Dwarfs recoiling in horror from Stitch. Well, and doesn't it say something like there's one in every family? Yep, that's what it is. Yeah, I I love that. It's great because it lets you know from the beginning, this is not your usual Disney movie. So you're not going to be shocked going in like, what's going on here? You know he's going to be kind of a brat. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also, you know what? Go ahead and leave that kind of reference humor and crossover stuff in the trailers and not in the movie. Thank you very much. It works very well. So he lands in Hawaii. That That's the end of the sci-fi stuff. And it is funny when they're like, oh, perfect. He's going to land in the ocean and die. Oh, come on. Oh, man, there's islands there. And this is where we introduce maybe the strangest detail in the whole movie. <laughs> the strangest mm. running gag, which is. Again, I can just see them working on the story. Chris Sanders figuring out the story. They're like, right, there has to be a reason they don't just like bomb the earth. What could it be? And (laughs) coming up with, well, we need some explanation. We should come up with something funny. It's a wildlife preserve for mosquitoes. (laughs) Yes. And Agent Pleakley is the expert on Earth. And he says, you can't destroy the planet because of the mosquitoes. And he has a view master that he's showing off uh, important information on, which is ridiculous. Right. And and the Grand Councilwoman is being the audience surrogate here, being like, why don't we do this thing? Why don't we do this thing? And Pleakley's like, no, nope, the only thing you can do is send two interesting characters down to have wacky antics together for a movie to happen. <laughs> oh, and one of them has to be me. Wait, what? That's not what I meant. <laughs> And the other one has to be Dr. Jumba. (laughs) Such a good pairing to have these two. And I love the button on this scene, you know, Jumba being like, on what planet has my monstrosity been unleashed? (laughs) Again, that great David Ogden Steers performance. Yep. And then we go into the first song. The first of two original songs in this movie. Which is the Hemele no Lilo, right? Yes. We finally get our title. <laughs> and it's a massive tonal shift, but in the yeah. right way where yeah. it's like, and it, you know. it, it sets you up for it because he's like, so where has he landed? And it's like, oh, yeah, we've had this sort of a thing in several movies where you have the question and then you have a scene change for the answer. Right. Right. And we're introduced to Lilo. Now, one thing watching this movie now that I hadn't picked on before. Yeah. Lilo to me is a fascinating character and a really, really wonderful character to be in a Disney movie because she is difficult. She is thorny. You know, even as a kid, I like, I liked her and I knew she was the main character of the movie, but it's also like, she's kind of mean and she's kind of poorly behaved, you know, it's. Yep. And the moral of this movie is not that she needs to stop being those things, you know, that she needs to like be normal or, you know, she, she's a little more behaved maybe because she is stitched. I had always thought that she had some kind of developmental disability, right. Or something like autism, maybe. Mm hmm. And you point out to me that, no, what it really is, is childhood PTSD. And these are how grieving children act. And so watching it this time, because we'd had that conversation, I was able to realize that and really picked up on how much grief is a part of this movie. Right. Because especially young children, they don't know how to. I mean, all of us have trouble processing grief. It's a fact of life. But young children especially really have a hard time with it. And sometimes it's delayed. So we don't know how long. Mom status and dad status. They're both dead. (laughs) So, yeah, Lilo and Nani are orphans. Yes, but unlike most Disney movies, that matters like at all. It does. And it actually has an important effect on their lives. It's not just, oh, we had too many characters, so cut them all. (laughs) Right. 
kill her. Um, uh... they, no, and and I, I was reading about this today, how, like, you know, grieving children, they feel they kind of have the same issues as children who've been abandoned um, because mm-hmm. they have, in a sense, or they think they have because they can't understand death in the in exactly the right way, right? So right. they feel abandoned by their parents. One of the things they do is act out and be kind of bratty because that way when they're abandoned again, they'll feel like it was my fault and they'll feel less bad about it. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. part of what Lilo's doing. We don't need to psychoanalyze a cartoon character. But I think they did a good job with her. They really do. So we start off, she's swimming. She's just fed a sandwich to a fish. You actually get to see the fish with the sandwich very briefly, but you don't know what's going on because she hasn't explained yet. The moment in this that really stands out to me and has stood out to me since I was a kid is the part where she goes, I want to dance. I practiced. I want to dance. I practice because that is so much. Even as a kid, I was like, that's me when I know that I've messed up and I'm probably in trouble, but I really want to do the thing that I was acting up about, you know? Right, right. Because she's late and she's wet. And so the other girl, Myrtle, is mean to her and calls her crazy. And then Lilo attacks her because she's just got called crazy. And again, as we said, she's acting out. And by the way, this is what kids do. You know, when kids fight, kids fight. It's true. And she's six. (laughs) But in a movie with more studio interference, in the same way that no Disney character can be directly responsible for a villain's death, you'd have, you know, oh, the audience will lose this character if she's like fighting this girl. But that's not true. They, They actually do parallels between her and Stitch. Because Stitch bites Gantu and he's like, does this look infected? And then Lilo actually bites Myrtle and Myrtle's like, does this look infected? (laughs) So they're giving you parallels between these two characters, how they both have problems and we're going to put them together and mix them up and see what happens. You know, one thing the spinoffs do well that I think is kind of in the background of this movie, but they bring more to the foreground is calling attention to the fact that like, Myrtle is white and the spinoffs make it clear that like her family has quite a bit of money and makes money from the tourist trade. And of course, Lilo and and the Pelikais are native Hawaiians. And so that's that's part of the reason for the bullying, right, is like class status and, and maybe a little bit of race status in there as well, you know. Which, again, I feel like is part of this movie. I feel like the characters are designed intentionally, but you don't you don't need it. You can just get it. Yep. And then so Lilo, you know, goes home. We do meet Scrump, the <laughs> horrifying doll. Her doll <laughs> that she made herself. She nails up the door and Nani arrives and Cobra Bubbles is right behind her. And we have all of this. The house is a nightmare. Nani is clearly doing her best. I didn't see anything that makes it clear exactly how old Nani is, but I always assumed she's like 18, 19 because she seems grown, you know, but she's not. I think she's still supposed to be right at the top of being a teenager, old enough to be an adult and to be able to have guardianship of a child. Right. Yes. So I feel like she has to be older than 18, but I don't think she's in her 20s yet. Interesting, because I I would have said she was, but it doesn't matter. It's about the same period of time. It's a young adult. And then, of course, once Cobra bubbles leaves and uh, and there is some funny stuff here, like it's a little You know, again, you see that the kitchen is a nightmare. You see what the situation is. Yep. But there's some funny stuff. You know, (laughs) I'm adjusted. I eat four food groups. I get disciplined a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, talking again about like these characters being thorny and and 
a little more unpleasant than you would get in your normal Disney movie. This exchange with the, you know, you should buy a rabbit instead. At least a rabbit would be quieter. You know, this is mean. This is really mean. And we also, of course, get the ticking clock on the movie, which is three days to change Cobra Bubbles mind. Yeah. So Lilo doesn't really understand that the whole thing with the social worker is if he doesn't get a good impression, he's going to separate them. Of course, because she's too young. And Nani is like trying her best, trying to take care of everything, but she's overwhelmed. I'm sure she's also grieving her parents. And it's a hard situation to be in. So after he leaves, they get into the screaming fight. And apparently in the original version of the movie, uh, one of the original versions of this scene, I should say, when they were screening it for test audiences, it di- it went differently and they didn't have so much emphasis on them being sisters. And they kept getting the feedback that people were like, I really don't like the scene where Lilo's mom is yelling at her <laughs> because people just didn't understand. It's not her mom. It's her sister, even though they had said earlier in the movie, it's her sister. But the dynamic they just thought meant mom. And so that's why in that scene, they call each other sisters like three or four times, because once everybody knew they were sisters, people are like, I love that scene with the sisters. It makes so much sense. They'd have a screaming fight (laughs) because it's okay when it's sisters. It's not okay when it's the mom. (laughs) And sure enough, there is another kind of heartbreaking line here is I like you better as a sister than a mom. And you know, and you like me better as a sister than a rabbit, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So heartbreaking. <laughs> but as an older sibling, one thing I really appreciate about Nani, who, by the way, is is right about everything in this movie and is the hero of this film, <laughs> which is one thing that the spinoffs absolutely get wrong. The spinoffs, there's barely any Nani. There's whole episodes of that TV show go by without any Nani. Nani is a protagonist of this movie. She's co-protagonist with Lilo and Stitch, in my opinion. Yeah. It's very, very important. You lose her, you lose something. You lose but, the heart. Uh, as I say, as an older sibling, I really have to appreciate Nani for uh, after we see the shooting star and Lilo's trying to push her out of the room, <laughs> doing the, oh no, gravity is increasing on me and falling back onto the younger sister, which I've done to my younger brother Approximately 700,000 times. <laughs> yes, he did not appreciate it. <laughs> nope, he hated it every time. He hates it now. <laughs> <laughs> He's still mad that you did it. But it's, it's a classic older sibling move. <laughs> so, you know, that's kids imitating cartoons. Listen, that's all I imitated. <laughs> but I, I definitely have done that. At least you weren't biting people. I wasn't biting people. <laughs> so now we get back to Stitch. Hey, remember this is a movie about aliens? Yep. Well, you know, we have to introduce Stitch and then we have to introduce Lilo. And now we're going to work on bringing them together. He gets run over by three trucks and is taken to the pound where because of something she overhears the previous night. Well, it's it's Lilo's wish. She's exactly. wishing on this shooting star, which is Stitch's crashing spaceship, that she wants a friend, an angel, somebody to be her friend and take care of her. Again, we have to establish a law very quick. So Jumba and Pleakley are on the island. Stitch goes out and they shoot at him and a plasma cannon will stun him. We've established all of this. So he needs a human shield because then Pleakley will stop Jumba from shooting him. And so he sort of transforms into a dog-like shape. He at least sucks in two of his six arms or limbs, I should say. Which I always thought was gross as a kid. It bothered me for some reason. 
Well, you know, it's kind of a gross noise. But yes, he can shapeshift just a little, so he does make himself cuter and look vaguely more like a dog. Very vaguely, which, you know, we kind of put a lampshade on that by acknowledging it, right? Because, like, yep. he walks out and... Nani and the uh, the the lady who works at the shelter, the shelter are both horrified. They're like, yes, <laughs> I don't it was know. Dead. <laughs> but of course, Lilo pays two dollars in a in another bit of like very specific, very like these. This feels like a real child when she uh, when she pays with the two dollars and <laughs> gets an official license for her dog stitch. <laughs> Yes, uh, which Stitch also, I feel like that's, you know, we never had a pet, but like I would give super weird names to my stuffed animals yep. like Stitch. I don't even blink at a, <laughs> a little girl calling a dog Stitch for no discernible reason. Yep. And again, like in case you haven't been paying attention so far, we set the rules. We reset the stage very clearly with Pleakley telling Jumba, you can't shoot and you can't be seen. Yep. Like these are the rules of engagement. But now we have driving around the island. Yep, where Lilo and Stitch are kind of exploring a little bit and then they end up stealing Myrtle's big wheel because Lilo tries to apologize. Myrtle doesn't accept and is mean again, so Stitch steals her big wheel (laughs) and they run all over the island. And after, you know, he realizes it's an island, we have the the montage of Stitch basically being bored because he doesn't have anything to destroy. He doesn't have anything to do. You know, and and so that basically becomes Jumba's strategy is like, we're just going to wait him out. This is, of course, also where we introduce Jumba and Pleakley's human disguises, which are about (laughs) as convincing as Stitch's dog disguise. It's so true. And yet (laughs) they seem to get by with it. And we've had at this point a couple of Elvis songs. This is that during this montage we have stuck on you. Then we get to. David's doing a fire show at the Luau. So we've got some Luau stuff going on, which um, when I first saw this movie reminded me very much of the Luau I went to at the Polynesian Resort at Walt Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not a coincidence since they were in fact working at Orlando, Florida. (laughs) You know, they're working at Walt Disney World on this movie. That, and I think they were somewhat working backwards from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I recall, they did Hawaiian roller coaster ride. Right. There. Well, not when I went to see it in the mid 90s. Oh, yes. Or the early 90s is when the first time I went to the Polynesian Resort and they didn't, of course, do any of the Lilo and Stitch tie in stuff. But when as a, the four of us as a family went in what, like 2016? Something like that. Thereabouts. They had modified the Polynesian Resort show to include a bunch of Lilo and Stitch elements, including the Hawaiian roller coaster song, which I should have suspected it. Like I should have expected it going in. Yeah. But I was really surprised (laughs) when they did it. I was like, oh, I should have guessed, but I didn't. And now apparently they've reworked it again to emphasize Moana more. (laughs) Interesting. And this scene does a lot of stuff. This is where we get the famous badness level. This is also where Nani loses her job. Uh, But perhaps most importantly, we are introduced to David, who I have to say, Mom, cover your ears. All right. (laughs) Cover my ears. This is a new segment on the show. This segment's called Gas Stuff. So here on Guy Stuff, listen, guys, dudes, bros of all ages, if you're looking for a male role model in a Disney movie, A, you're a freak, but B, David's the guy. David, 
He is such a good guy. Mom, you can uncover yours. Okay. <laughs> I was just talking about what a great character David is, and I really appreciate that. And it sounds like the voice actor got to bring some of it to this character, but his relationship with Nani and Lilo is, is very respectful. And yep. it's it's. I just think he's a great little character to just be in the mix, even though he's not here very much. Yep. I like that they establish really quickly that he's got a crush on Nani. You know, he wants to date her. She is overwhelmed and can't right now. But because Lilo tells us she's read Nani's diary, we know that Nani's interested in David, too. That makes things end up not feeling creepy, some of the things that happen, right? And I think it's clear in, like, the performances and the way the characters interact with each other, even without the diary detail, which is funny. But also, you can tell that he's in for the long haul. Like, Mm -hmm. so many Disney characters, you know, especially Disney male characters, like, it's love at first sight, right? It's, It's basically just like, oh, you're so beautiful. This is like, no, he wants to and is willing to be a part of this family. Yeah. Here's one of the things I was thinking about this movie. This movie is, in some ways, one of the most realistic movies. Definitely. 100%. Of the Disney movies. Even though it's got all the silly space alien stuff (laughs) and the sci-fi stuff. In the human relationships, though, it's very real. It is. It's very grounded and it's very specific. Which is, I think, part of why this movie works so well. Right. So much of the other movies that are trying to be dark, like you can kind of see the wheels turning. You can see like, oh, this is the movie is trying to be dark now. The movie is trying to be funny now. This just feels like these are the lives of these characters. Yeah. And I was thinking about this because, you know, I compare this movie to Lion King just in the sense of, We have been complaining so much these past several movies, and Mm -hmm. we will do it more, about Disney movies that are trying to balance darkness and silliness and totally screw it up. Mm -hmm. And we brought up Lion King as our other example of a movie that goes really, really dark, really, really bleak, and does it well. But the difference, and of course, that's still a great movie, but the difference between that and this, those movies' emotions are more operatic. I mean, they're literally Shakespeare, right? Right. They're huge world-shaking events. Uh The stakes of this movie, despite, as you say, all the space alien stuff, really are, is Lilo going to be allowed to stay with Nani? Right. Or is she going to have to go to some kind of foster situation? But, so, Nani loses her job. And and it's it's Pleakley and Jumba's and Stitch's fault. (laughs) Definitely. So you you feel very a lot of sympathy for Nani during this movie, because it's not her fault. Absolutely not. I mean, Stitch... You know, David says this later because he's right about everything, but <laughs> it really is kind of Stitch's fault um, yep. that that most of this stuff goes as bad as it does, which, again, is like a very bold thing to trust that your audience will still be with this character. Yep. Despite that. And and this is where Nani is like, we got to take Stitch back. I don't know what this thing is. It's a nightmare. I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's making everything worse. Yep. But Lilo invokes Ohana. Which my understanding is it doesn't just mean family. It's like your extended family. You're not exactly adopted family, but people in your life who you might not be related to you, but you treat as family, which is a uh, very Hawaiian concept, very community oriented culture. Yes, exactly. And so that's, you know, the Ohana here ends up being two sisters, one of the sisters kind of boyfriend, (laughs) two weirdo aliens and... 
a, a dog alien. Like that's and a one genetic experiment. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, outside, Jumbo and Pleakley fight over the wig, which is just hysterical. <laughs> It's true. Even if we don't mention them, just assume they're spying on everything this whole time. They're they're almost always there and they're usually having some sort of interaction, but not not a lot. And this is where we kind of get Lilo and Stitch, Stitch in Lilo's room. Stitch is rampaging around. <laughs> he makes San Francisco just to break it. Well, she suggests she finally suggests make something don't just break everything so he builds a model of san francisco just so he can rampage through it and break it which is great super fun by the way if you're a kid yeah highly yep. recommend don't destroy all your toys but like yeah making a little city out of cardboard stomping around it 10 out of 10 activity <laughs> i see this movie was in some ways a bad influence <laughs> <laughs> The moral I got from this movie is that Lilo and Stitch are awesome. <laughs> Imitate them. Yeah, I, it's funny because until I start talking about this stuff, I don't realize how much of an effect this movie had on me. <laughs> we do get a funny scene here where the mosquitoes find Pleakley. And, yes. and he's like, a mosquito is nesting on me. <laughs> She's nuzzling me with her nose. Oh, wait. And then he's like covered with mosquitoes and getting bit. And I'm just like so creeped out by that. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently he's delicious to mosquitoes. I don't know. Apparently he is delicious to mosquitoes. And he ends up bit a ton. Yeah, I think Plinkley works better in this movie than in some of the other stuff with him because he's the punching bag in this. Yeah. Yeah. You can have an annoying character if the movie understands he's a little annoying and he's not too annoying in this he gets more annoying but this is also though we do get the first sign of for lack of a better word humanity from jumba which is him you know looking at stitch and going now this is interesting he has nothing to destroy what is it like to have nothing like you have no purpose in life right and this is when we finally get stitch starting to maybe do something different because he's looking through not, uh, Lilo's books and he finds which are all hilarious right <laughs> and he finds the ugly duckling which is the the artwork is like from the Disney ugly duckling which I always found amusing <laughs> that it's the Disney ugly duckling art basically he asks Lilo what is the story and she explains and Stitch you can see is relating to it yes and I it's funny I know this movie isn't based off fairy tale this is one of the few a very few 100% original Disney movies, right? Yeah, Even something right. like Atlantis is based on the legend of Atlantis. You know, uh, several of these Lion other things King. will be based on things. Yeah. This is one of the few that is wholly original. And yet I've always kind of thought of it as sort of an adaptation of the Ugly Duckling. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of feels themes. like a take on it. Yeah, themes. So that's very important. But the next scene, we essentially reset the status quo again and, you know, make it very clear with Cobra Bubbles saying what needs to happen, which is model citizen. Stitch (laughs) needs to become a model citizen and Nani needs to get a new job. And then we get another montage with another Elvis song because now we're having training to be like Elvis. You're the devil in disguise. (laughs) (laughs) Very appropriate. Very appropriate. And I think this is the first instance of Ice Cream Guy. No, you see him when, at the very beginning of the movie, when Lilo is running to the hula practice. So we have a recurring character 
very sunburnt large man with mint chocolate chip ice cream cone. And every time you see him, his ice cream falls off and he never gets to eat it. Voiced in the spinoffs by Frank Wilker. Pay him his price. <laughs> because all he, he never talks in those, but he will like gasp. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So again, if you're just making noises, better get Wilker. Yep. Nobody else can gasp in this town. Yeah, well, the funny thing is he never says anything, but he just looks sad whenever he loses <laughs> his ice cream. He needs to he needs to move. I don't know. The sun doesn't agree with him. The ice cream isn't working out. But the end of this montage, Stitch ruins everything, which is where our main man, David, comes in to help everyone feel better. Though I feel like at this point you can already tell, like, you know, Nani hasn't gotten a job. Stitch is clearly still a monster, like, and you get Cobra Bubbles staring at them. They already know it's not going to work out, I think, even though they're not saying it yet. But I do love this scene. I think this may be my favorite scene. The Hawaiian roller coaster ride song with the surfing scene. It's a very it's a very good scene. I had a hard time picking a favorite scene in this one, too. It's a great song. It's a great song. And it's a great scene that they've had such a hard day. Nani's trying so hard to get the job. Lilo and Stitch just keep messing things up unintentionally. Mm -hmm. Stitch is actually trying to be good. Yeah. He is doing what Lilo tells him about behaving like Elvis. Neither of them really know how to be that good. It's true. (laughs) Having Lilo teaching Stitch to be good is not necessarily going to work. And Stitch is very lonely in this scene and he's left out of some of the fun because nobody really wants to deal with him. And also he can't swim. So he's a little nervous about the, the actual surfing and being out in the water. And, but you see him watching them and how they're enjoying themselves and, you know, building the sandcastle and stuff. And so he starts like doing some of the things to kind of feel like he belongs and eventually, and even Nani starts to warm up to stitch a little bit. And then he actually, you know, asks to be taken out surfing like I will participate. He willingly returns to water, as Jumbo points out, while Plinkley <laughs> is calling his mom. And then Jumbo messes everything up again by swimming out to grab Stitch because, again, he's still trying to capture him. And this causes Lilo to nearly drown and Stitch to nearly drown And Cobra Bubbles is watching the whole thing. So, of course, you know, Nani seems like a very incapable guardian, even though it's all Jumba's fault. Yes. And I like, though, how they handle this, because up to this point, Cobra Bubbles has been pretty antagonistic. But right when he finally has to deliver the verdict, and this is, of course, there's only one choice he can make. But he, you know, he says, I know you're trying, Nani but you need to do what's best for Lee. Like he can see that she is trying and that she is a good person. You appreciate that dignity. I mean, you can't fault him. There's really, and that's the thing. Like when Nani and Lilo are arguing, you see both sides of their argument. When Lilo and Stitch are fighting, you understand both sides of that. That's the thing about this movie. Like I say, you're with it. You're with everyone. You can't even really blame Cobra Bubbles. I mean, based on what he's seen, he's making... The right decision, unfortunately. Yep. And this is when David tells Stitch that he ruined it. Like he thought they had a chance and we're going to make it until Stitch showed up. Yeah. And and this is where it gets really sad. I think I have to pick 
this as my favorite scene, as weird as that is, because it's usually our favorite scenes are like, oh, this is so fun. But when I think about this movie, what I think about first is especially Nani and Lilo uh, sitting, you know, in the hammock while she sings Mm -hmm. and Stitch watching, knowing he's not a part of this. Which is normally where I kind of choke up. I didn't this time, maybe because I was expecting it. But then the next scene. So I'm counting the whole sad sequence as as one favorite scene. But the next scene right. really got me this time for whatever reason. With Stitch leaving and Lilo knows he's leaving. Again, all of her abandonment issues come to the forefront. Right. And, and she invites Stitch to stay, but she says he can go. If he wants to. And she talks about, you know, she assumes his parents have died. And she says, I know that's why you wreck things and push me. And it like really recharacterizes all the stuff so far, because, you know, up to this point, you, you're you kind of like, what do you see in Stitch? Like Stitch is a literal mm-hmm. monster. Like, why do you want to put mm-hmm. up with him? He broke all your stuff. He's exhausting. Yep. And she assumes that he is doing the same thing she is doing, which is that he's like her a heartbreaking revelation in and of itself. But then if you go, she says, I'll remember you. I remember everyone that leaves. It's making me choke up again. Just talking about it. Yeah, it's really powerful and it's really heartbreaking. And Lilo or a stitch, of course, just walks out into the forest and with the ugly duckling book and tries to imitate what he says there, sees there and says, I'm lost. And hopes that his family will come and find him because he doesn't know that he doesn't have a family. And now we desperately need Jumba and Pleakley to lighten the mood. So thank goodness here they are. (laughs) The Grand Councilwoman calls them again. And she fires them because they're taking too long to catch Stitch Experiment 626. I have a super (laughs) weird association with this scene. This is how I remember I have the coloring book, because the only thing I remember about it was there was one page where you had to do one of those word games. And Ah. it was for this scene. And it was like Jumba has just been told that he and Pleakley are fired. So why is he happy? Figure out these clues to hear what Jumba says. And it's now we do it my way, which is what he says in this scene. But I got the book before I saw the movie and I was confused. I was like, why does he say that? It didn't make any sense to me. So for whatever reason, that's stuck in my brain. And I always think about the moment now where he says, now we do it my way, which is what he says here, because now we're just opening fire on kids. That's Jumba's way. Yes. So he he goes up to where Stitch is waiting for his family and he explains, you don't have a family. You're never going to belong. I created you. I'm the closest thing you're going to have to family. And I'm not basically. <laughs> and then chases them and, you know, starts a firefight. Also, by the way, David, again, has come through. This is certified gas stuff. Yeah. David <laughs> has found a job for Nani because he's a wonderful, supportive man. But yes, we have the battle with the aliens set to hound dog, which is just Pure fun. And it works as an action scene. But Lilo has gets left alone in the house. Stitch comes back with Jumba chasing. And this is when the house is getting destroyed. This is also when Stitch starts really talking and kind of quipping and making jokes. He doesn't talk much in this movie, which is good, I think. I think he talks too much later. Yeah. Well, you know, he is pretending to be 
a dog, even though Lilo's like, I'm pretty sure I heard you talk. Right. But this, <laughs> there's a lot of funny lines here about, you know, I'll make you taller and not so fluffy. And my, and maybe my favorite joke in the movie is them playing hot potato with the plasma gun. <laughs> Specifically, <laughs> the, so the last bit with my mother told me you are. And Stitches goes, idiot. <laughs> like... <laughs> There was a really, really funny thing about that in the making of I was watching. They were needing to redo that scene because originally it had been people were thinking it was feeling like it was too violent because there was just a lot more different things happening with, you know, actual shooting. They were like, it just feels like he really wants to kill Stitch, not just capture him. And, you know, the house getting destroyed. It was just a, a bit meaner of a scene. So they they tweaked it and ended it. Rather than it was originally the house exploded because like Stitch rips a stove off the wall and then the gas stove, like the gas is leaking into the room and Jumba fires the gun and, you know, blows up the gas and explodes the whole house with the two of them in it. So, yeah, very dark um, in the original. So they had to come up with some way for the house to blow up. So that's why they did the joke with the gun. But they were like. Chris Sanders was like, what's that rhyme that you say when you're doing like ring around the rosy? And he's talking to uh, Dean and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you know, the, my mother told me, what, what is that? What is that? And he's trying to remember. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. We never did that. <laughs> and so then it shows him calling everybody he knows. So when you did the ring around the rosy, how did you end it? <laughs> and getting everybody's take on how that how that rhyme went. And finally he's describing the scene to somebody and they're like, Oh, like kind of like hot potatoes. Like, yes, yes. Hot potato. That's what, that's what we want. But what was that? My mama told me thing. <laughs> Nobody can remember it. Just so many different versions of people doing the, the rhymes. And it was really funny because I never thought about it being different for in different people. Cause the way we always did it was, my mama told me to pick the very best one and you are not going to be it for the rest of your entire life because we had to make it as long as possible. <laughs> right. I think we had something <laughs> like that. This is where, you know, Lilo is really getting separated from Nani because Cobra Bubbles is like, your house is on fire. And Gantu in a previous scene has been put on the case. So now he captures Lilo and Stitch, which Nani sees it's it's kind of amazing that the alien plotline and all these alien characters don't intersect with Nani and Lilo until here, quite late into the movie. And it works. You're not spending the whole movie being like, when is this going to like happen? Like, Yeah. Yeah. It's not until here that Lilo realizes there's other aliens and then. And the Stitch is an alien. Right. And then Nani sees that there's other aliens and she realizes Stitch is an alien and she sneaks up to like not sneaks. She goes up to Jumbo, Jumbo and Pleakley that she sees. And this scene is always what really chokes me up. I mean, there have been several, like you said, the Aloha Oi song and that time. And then even when, you know, she's running to the house and it's on fire and Bubbles puts Lilo in the car and she's like, please. Yes. Um, that too. But then here where she's going to Jumbo and Pleakley and is like, Where's Lilo? Tell me where, how can I get her? Where's Lilo? And they're like, she's gone, you know, too bad. It's over. And she's, you know, just breaks down and it's like. <laughs> and 
It's really incredibly well performed. The whole, you know, she's like barely keeping a lid on it with like, where's Lilo? And then Lilo, she's a little girl. She has brown hair and she hangs around with that thing. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I will say, though, there is a joke in this scene that I, I really enjoy, which is Pleakley telling Jumba to read Stitch his rights and Jumba goes leasing carefully and just <laughs> smashes him into the tree. <laughs> What's especially funny is that Stitch apparently makes a squeak toy noise when you hit him. <laughs> uh, I mean, why not? Right. <laughs> but Stitch walks up, says that they are Ohana, and then persuades Jumba to save Lilo in two seconds. <laughs> He's very persuasive. Yep. And we get the huge red ship which is awesome, the scene of the huge red ship coming up out of the clouds. It's so much better than a plane. Like, I even, you know, leaving aside the, I don't know, the the whole, the 9-11 of it all. Right. It's just, a, it's a really cool visual. It always stuck with, again, like the ship design in this, like, I don't think we had these toys, but I kind of wanted these toys. You know what I mean? Like, they, <laughs> they, it was all very cool. Right. You know, and, and the ice cream guy gets God again. And it's another yes. <laughs> totally functional action scene. Like it, it completely works. It, it does all the things a great action scene needs to do. It, you know, switches who's on top and who's not again. It's a great moment of Jumba being like, stay close, hope for a miracle. That's all we can do. There's Stitch driving an oil tanker into a volcano with his friend, the frog again. <laughs> volcano National Park. So he can blow himself up to get back to the spaceship to rescue Lilo. Which this is like the goosebumps moment of like the big hero yeah. moment is when he does that, flies up like a rocket, smashes through the windshield, goes, Aloha! <laughs> yes. Of course, at the end, everyone is saved. The aliens are defeated. David has to give them all a ride to shore, which he does because he's a good man. Yep. Yep. On his surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> On his surfboard. Uh, Gantu, of course, just has to walk <laughs> because he's a kaiju. Uh, yeah. And then the Grand Councilwoman lands on Earth. <laughs> Nobody move. Everybody's under arrest. <laughs> and this is where we find out that uh, Cobra Bubbles used to be part of the CIA. This, again, the <laughs> world building in this movie, it's subtle and we don't need a lot of it, but it's really good. And I love his whole thing of like, these aliens love rules. Yep. Like, it's an alien bureaucracy. And if you make up a rule, no matter how, like, under flimsy pretense, they have to follow it. Like, it's such a good little idea. Yep, because Lilo has the license that she purchased Stitch. He belongs to her. Then the Grand Councilwoman is like, oh, I guess we have to follow your laws. And we're going to let him be have, basically, it's the same punishment, life in exile, but now it's life on exile on Earth with his family. And now their family is under the protection of the Galactic Federation. And so, yay, Nani and Lilo get to stay together along with Stitch. And weirdly, Jumba and Pleakley because the Grand <laughs> I just love the explanation for it, which is just her being like, I'm not hanging out with these guys. Don't let those two on my ship. And they, of course, just blew up their ship. Right. So they're stuck. Right. And... Then they're doing up the house. And this is another contender for favorite scene. I, Burning love I would feel song. bad picking this because it has the least to do with any of the story. But honestly, all this fun montage stuff is kind of a better Lilo and Stitch sequel than any of the Lilo and Stitch sequels. <laughs> Just this little epilogue. I actually really like this cover of Burning Love. I know we talk about the crappy credits cover, which this is not crappy. 
And it's also technically not over the credits, but it it's similar. Yeah, it's over like the final montage scene. Winona Judd. All sorts of silliness, you know, the bra superhero, the Christmas, the <laughs> it's all really nice. I like how Stitch is obviously, you know, he's being a productive member of the family. He's making their lunches for them and yeah, <laughs> when they're going to work and to school. Yep. And uh, and the final shot, of course, is the previously broken, burnt picture of the family, which they talk about being a broken family a lot. So it's appropriate with a picture of Stitch underneath it to show he's part of the family. Yep. What a great way to end it. It's kind of perfect. It's a really excellent film. It is. And then we do in the credits have a crappy cover version of a song. Toilet. This one sucks. This one's so bad. This is the worst. Can't help falling in love. Covered by the A teens. Uh. <laughs> That's teens as in teenagers. Or like the Z teens. Uh. It's the worst version of that song I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so hard. Can't help fall in love. A great song with many great covers. <laughs> Honestly, personally, I think I like Elvis covers more than Elvis songs. Like there's a lot of <laughs> Elvis songs I love, but rarely is my favorite version the Elvis version. So I'm not biased against covers. This one's this one's trash. This one is fully yeah. trash. My favorite Elvis song being probably the UB40 cover of Can't Help Fallen in Love. I don't know. I love that. Anyway, <laughs> speaking yep. of excellent movies, not sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides, and reboots. <laughs> All right. Again, much like with Winnie the Pooh, there's so much to cover and we have a limited time, so we're not going to cover <laughs> every single thing. For example, I have nothing to say about any of the video games. Didn't have them. Don't care about them. I know there was some park stuff. Most notably, there were terrible, horrifying park costumes. And uh, let's say mixed bag of park costumes. Some of them were OK. Some of them were Jumba. <laughs> it's it, yeah. unsurprisingly that you can mostly see the characters still at Tokyo Disneyland and occasionally at Disneyland Paris, which I keep being like, why do I keep seeing that Disneyland Paris has so many of the characters that aren't seen anywhere else? I don't know. Maybe the French like things like characters. More. I don't know. <laughs> than American um, audiences. Yeah, I think they, you might be onto something there. <laughs> they used to have the Stitch's Great Escape ride at Walt Disney World. Um, it's not there anymore. I'm so sad about it. I loved that. Yeah, it's weird to call it a ride. It was more like an experience. You sat in a theater and Stitch would jump on the back of your seat and stuff. Well, and it was like a, it was like, what do they call it? Like a theater in the round kind of. Yeah. You know, different stuff would happen. You weren't a big fan of the uh, chili dog breath. No, that is the worst <laughs> part of that is they do smells. And there's one part where Stitch eats a chili dog and burps over you and you get to, and it is disgusting. I can still like smell that smell right now. And I hate it. They, they really did synthesize the smell of chili dog burps. Those Imagineers. They're too good at their job. But I loved that ride. I thought that was a great ride. And I just loved having Stitch in Tomorrowland. And I mean, occasionally I think he still is there. I, of course, they don't do as many characters right now because of COVID. But um, so it's one of those like, who knows what's going to happen once they basically feel like COVID is over enough. Right. What I did find interesting, though, is the Tokyo Disney version of the uh, Enchanted Tiki Room has Stitch in it. <laughs> <laughs> and Stitch merchandise is everywhere. So Hugely much. Because it's a great movie. I mean, 
Stitch is not my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> no, that's the interesting thing. For me personally. I think it's a real mistake that so much of the spinoff stuff just kind of focuses on Stitch and the toyability of Stitch and ignores like, again, really ignores Nani and even Lilo. Yeah. Well, but the thing is for kids and for it's it's just more popular Lilo and Stitch those characters and Stitch, I guess, because kids like that he's cute and they like that he is badly behaved sometimes and kids know they're badly behaved sometimes. I mean, he is more like toyability, right? He's the more marketable character. He's a distinct design. He's cute. He's funny. He has a silly voice. Like, he's much more cartoony. Yeah. But I don't know, even as a kid, like, I understood that I liked Lilo and Stitch together best. <laughs> Yeah. But sure enough, perhaps it's appropriate that the first sequel of three, all of which I watched this week, was called Stitch, the movie. Lilo's right out of it from 2003. The sequels to this are Stitch, the movie, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch has a glitch, and Leroy and Stitch. And you might be wondering, why is the third one called Lilo and Stitch 2? Is my brain melting? Yes, it is. But (laughs) the reason this movie is called Stitch, the movie, is because they very much knew they were doing the TV show. They already kind of started developing the TV show while the movie was happening, as they were wont to do, as we've discussed. And they were planning to call the TV show Stitch. But then they changed it to Lilo and Stitch, the series, I think because people like Lilo and would actually like those characters to be together, please. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just to make it more obvious what it is. I don't know exactly why they did it. But they did not call the TV show we're about to talk about... Stitch with an exclamation point. (laughs) But they didn't make that decision in time for Stitch the movie to not be called Stitch the movie. So Stitch the movie is, again, (laughs) I think this is the one I've seen the most, although we definitely watched all of these spinoffs multiple times. You did. They were in the blockbuster rotation. I absolutely were. But this one was just, this one's just an extended pilot for the TV show. It is. I think it's very, very, very bad. As, as a movie, despite the <laughs> fact that it is fully imprinted on my brain. It's honestly barely a movie. It's just kind of setting up all the pieces for the TV show, which is supposedly about all of the other 625 experiments being let loose on Kauai and uh, Lilo and Stitch and their Ohana, but not Nani <laughs> are going to be or barely Nani, are uh, in charge of, like, finding a new home for all of them, taking care of them. Well, grown-ups are boring, I guess. Getting them into a place where they can be useful. Unless they're weird aliens. <laughs> Meanwhile, the the villains, the, the main villain of this movie and the series mm-hmm. is Dr. Hamsterville, who talks like one of the French people in Monty Python's uh, uh, The Holy Grail and straight up quotes some of the lines from that in Stitch, the movie, just in case you didn't get it. Mm. And Jacques von Hamsterville, who was the person who funded all of Jumba's experiments, and he looks like a gerbil. His name is Hamsterville. Mm -hmm. That is the only joke. And... By good Lord, do they run it by about five minutes of Dr. Hamsterville in this movie. You are sick of him. And he was an entire TV show. It's <laughs> he's 
awful. It's an awful idea. We talked about how, you know, what's great about the alien designs in the real movie are how unique and interesting they are. And they're like, eh, what if it's a talking gerbil? And his deal is he doesn't like being called a gerbil. <laughs> and nothing, nothing else. It sucks. I hate it. <laughs> Fortunately, he's just off in space prison and he's commanding on the ground, Gantu. Ah. And another terrible one joke character, Experiment 625. Uh, played extremely by Rob Paulson <laughs> uh, because it's just him doing what he does, yep. doing his Rob Paulson voice. And Experiment 625, who will eventually be named Ruben, he's obsessed with sandwiches and, again, nothing else. If you think that having a sidekick who is obsessed with making sandwiches isn't enough for a character, you're right. You nailed it. Okay, I did not look at this earlier, but I did just find out Dr. Hamster Veal is also a character you can meet at the parks. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no! Oh, this costume. Oh, uh, hey, if you're listening to this, remind me to post this costume on Twitter or look it up yourself, but this, this is the worst. <laughs> Holy mother of pearl. Yep. That's, that's horrific. That's, mm-hmm. that might be the worst one. Pretty scary. I was wondering, because I was describing the movie and you you were falling silent and staring in horror at your computer. And I was like, <laughs> "What? what's wrong? I was just thinking, I was like, you know what? I don't think I looked specifically at Dr. Hamsterville because I wasn't going into the sequels. And I don't. was wanting to remember exactly what he looked like. And so I was just, you know, I was just pulling up one of the pages. And when I got there, I was like, oh, <laughs> It says he has park appearances. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I have to stress, not only did I watch these movies, but I watched the series quite a bit. It was never a favorite. It was mostly we like Lilo and Stitch and we like watching shows on the Disney Channel. We will watch a Lilo and Stitch show. I distinctly remember, even as a kid, it was never a favorite. I Mm -hmm. liked it more than I do as an adult now, but it it was never a favorite. Yep. Uh, but, But we would watch it. It was fine. And so, again, that's really all Stitch, the movie does, mm-hmm. is it just sets all that up. It's not really a movie. <laughs> it's not very good. It's it's pretty dull. And I'm pretty sure you guys watched some of Lilo and Stitch, the series as well. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The series is, is what we watched and mm-hmm. it wasn't a favorite, but we definitely watched quite a few episodes of it. Or I felt like we hit the same episodes multiple times. You know how it is. <laughs> yes, I did watch one of those episodes this week. I watched a bunch of episodes because it's horrible. And I like, again, I had so much fondness for this. I wanted to like it. So I kept going through Disney Plus being like, what sounds interesting? Trying to like it. I think I hate this show. Well, I had to watch the crossover episode with Kim Possible. I did watch that one as well. And I also think it's horrible. I think that the, there was, it did several crossovers. There was a crossover yeah. with American Dragon Jake Long, which I've never watched, mm-hmm. with the Proud Family, which I, I kind of watched. Uh, I know that a lot of people have fondness for it, especially, you know, obviously for, for African-American people. It's a very important uh, show. So I have no beef with it. We just didn't watch it a lot as a kid. I don't know too much about it. but mm-hmm. And it had a crossover with Recess, which I loved and definitely saw as a kid yep. at least once. I remember thinking it wasn't very good. <laughs> and it had this Kim Possible crossover, which the, the biggest problem with this Kim Possible crossover is that 
I just spent the whole time wishing I was watching Kim Possible. Like right, I felt like right. all the Kim Possible stuff was good and all the other stuff was terrible. <laughs> I mean, at least they did include one of her best villains, Dr. Draken. That's the thing. There's a scene, for example, early on where Dr. Draken is talking to Hamsterveil and Draken, a great performance mm. by an all time great voice actor, John DiMaggio. And so many funny bits that Dr. Draken has. Yep. Versus just Hamsterveil, who's just screaming. He's just screaming in the annoying voice. And even Draken hangs up on him. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, because he's another thing. Weirdly, you could tell that Lilo and Stitch was animated on a much cheaper budget because the Kim Possible characters, they don't look right. <laughs> One of the many things about Lilo and Stitch, the series that I find annoying, and I've talked about a lot of it, right? Like there's no Nani. Lilo is sanded down into just being a completely generic character. Stitch mm -hmm. is basically sanded down to just being a completely generic character. Pleakley gets made super annoying. Jumba's pretty much still funny. <laughs> I do think it's funny that they are Uncle Jumba and Aunt Pleakley. Yes, uh, they do so many cross-dressing jokes with Pleakley, which, you know, is a thing in the original movie, but it's like just a little bit of it. We don't need that to be his main thing. In the show, it's his main thing. Mm -hmm. So if you think a male character dressing as a woman and again, nothing else is hilarious, then boy, that is a thing that happens. Um, but, 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 but like the other thing that annoys me about this series, and I admit it's me being petty, clearly it's a monster of the week series is what it's supposed to be. Right. Where, you know, there's 625 of these, I mean, okay, there's 625 who's a character, there's 626 as a character. 624 experiments, and they ran out of ideas after like 10. <laughs> because several experiments appear in multiple episodes. Mm -hmm. Several episodes don't have an experiment. There's no experiment in the Doctor in the in the Kim Possible episode. Right. What are you doing? <laughs> That's like the thing. That is, I think, the best idea of this show is. Well, if he's named Experiment 626, let's see all the other ones. Right. Or at least a large number. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not expecting it to have 625 episodes. But what I'm saying is with the episodes you have, I should be able to see some experiments. I want to see some stitches. That's what I'm here for. Yep. I was really disappointed. This was a nostalgia buster. Like I say, I probably watched like six episodes over the past week trying to like it. So what about Lilo and Stitch 2? So Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch has a glitch. This is the standout. <laughs> if you must watch a Lilo and Stitch <laughs> sequel, and you really don't, <laughs> this is the one for sure. Where they, it is actually a different voice actor for Lilo. I looked it up. It's Dakota Fanning is Lilo in this one. Ah. Not particularly relevant, except that we mentioned that earlier, and I want to stop some tweets. But True. Interestingly, though, the other actress comes back for Leroy and Stitch. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. The the reason this one is called Lilo and Stitch 2 is because this one is more your classic direct-to-video sequel. It mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the TV show. Apparently, there's some references. I didn't pick up on them, but I, I believe you that there's some references. It feels more like a sequel. And the hook for this one is basically, for reasons so stupid, I'm not going to bother explaining them, <laughs> Stitch is reverting back to his evil programming, which uh -huh. is... A decent hook. It's a little bit we're doing the same movie again, yeah. but they wring some pathos out of Stitch wanting to be good and being forced to be bad, which feels like <laughs> a natural extension of the first movie's themes, mm -hmm. even if it's mostly stupid, like why it's happening and where it gets to. Also, this movie, I has to say, 
most importantly, has some good jokes. I sent you some of the good jokes from this movie. Yep. I genuinely laughed out loud at this movie a couple of times. <laughs> and again, I think, you know, it's a direct-to-video sequel, right? All the usual problems apply. But it is a Disney Toon movie, which I feel like is noted for trying even when their budgets aren't there mm. or their talent isn't there. Yeah. And I really think this is about as good as a Lilo and Stitch sequel, something that shouldn't exist should be. It sidelines Nani once again, but at least she's there and mm-hmm. doing something. That's the biggest problem with it. But it's it's all right. It's all right, for sure. And it does actually, interestingly enough, kill Stitch. Uh, <laughs> Stitch's glitch kills him, but of course he does come back to life. I would assume. And there's no explanation for that, hilariously. It's just <laughs> he comes back to life and Pleakley goes, but I thought that was impossible. And Jumba goes, it is. And that's that's it. That's all the explanation you get. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know. It's nice. It's a it's a watchable movie. And I what's interesting about this movie that I figured out while I was, you know, scrolling letterboxed uh, while watching it because it does not demand your full attention. <laughs> It was written and co-directed by a guy named Michael Labash. Michael Labash wrote three movies for Disney. He wrote, obviously, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch as a Glitch. Yep. He wrote Kronk's New Groove. Uh-huh. And he wrote Home on the Range. <laughs> I have to say, this is Michael Labash's best movie by a landslide. But I can't believe that after writing two of these DTV sequels, they were like, hey, Want to take a shot at the cannon? (laughs) Oh, I'm not looking forward to Home on the Range. I'm really not. (laughs) So the final movie was Leroy and Stitch, where I said that Stitch, the movie, was just a glorified pilot. This one's just a glorified finale. (laughs) I'm not even going to talk about this movie. There's really nothing to say. It just wraps up the, the series. Leroy is an evil red version of Stitch that Hamster Veal forces Jumba to make so that we yeah. have a villain for this finale. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's every idea in this movie is dumb and bad also. I feel like even by the time that one was coming out, you guys weren't even really interested in watching another Lilo and Stitch movie. Like This is not true, and I know why. Oh? I, I, can, I have a specific story that I'm going to tell about this that's far more interesting than the story of the movie itself, which is that... Leroy and Stitch, my mother, was the subject of my first film review. (laughs) Do you remember? I'm not sure entirely what grade this is. I want to say third grade, maybe fifth. I guess we could do the math, but I can't be bothered. (laughs) But uh, in elementary school, I started a class newspaper by myself. Mm -hmm. It was called the Classroom Papers. I just basically I read about class newspapers and I thought they were a cool idea. So I started writing and distributing one on my own time. And the teacher was like, yeah, that's a good outlet for your energy. (laughs) You might be surprised to hear that I just when left alone, will just work on creative projects for no reason. I am not surprised to hear this. (laughs) I say as we record our podcast for no one that we are actively losing money on. (laughs) And when we watched Leroy and Stitch, I enjoyed it so much. And I thought that my fellow uh, classroom papers readers, which I think was nobody. I mean, I'm pretty sure we read it and your teacher <laughs> read it. Well, there you go. Uh, I thought they would want to know, you know, the, the Lilo and Stitch franchise has come to its conclusion. <laughs> so I wrote a review of it. I tried to find it. It's gone, unfortunately. Aww. It's like eight computers ago. <laughs> Not that many, but it's enough that 
I'm not going to save those files forever, I guess. I kind of wish I had, but sadly, the classroom papers are lost to time. The review is. But I remember it was positive, and I remember specifically I really enjoyed there is a recurring bit where as a reward for his service to the Galactic Federation, Stitch is given a vehicle called the BRB, which stands for Big Red Battleship. <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing ever. So I specifically remember having a lot to say about the Big Red Battleship. That's funny. So that was my first ever film review, uh, and it was totally <laughs> wrong. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think I would put Leroy and Stitch and Stitch the movie among the worst things I've watched uh, for this show, but not not <laughs> like at the bottom. At this point, it's hard to crack the, the bottom 10. Yep. They might be like 11 and 12. <laughs> Whereas Lilo and Stitch 2, by virtue of being watchable and making me laugh, is in like the top one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> top two. It's like that in the Tigger movie. There you go. So as I say, that was the end of the Lilo and Stitch franchise. In America. Right. (laughs) I discovered this a few years ago and was shocked. And so this is something I've been waiting to talk about on spinoff sequels, remix rides and reboots. It's part of the reason this uh, exists. There's like a whole universe of international adaptations, especially in Asia, where I guess this movie is very popular, which makes sense. Yep. So there was a Japanese TV show that used the name Stitch. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, which used the name Stitch. With an exclamation point. That's right. And this is about, basically, it's Lilo and Stitch, but it's actually Yuna and Stitch. It's a Japanese girl named Yuna. Mm-hmm. And it's set in Okinawa instead of Hawaii. What I didn't realize until I looked into it is that all of the American shows and stuff are still canon. Uh-huh. The premise of this is... Lilo has abandoned Stitch, and so he has flown to Japan, which I was talking to some of my friends about this, and my girlfriend was so upset to hear that that was the premise. And once I heard her out, I was like, yeah, that's kind of right. Like that Lilo would abandon Stitch after she feels abandoned. And after, you know, Ohana means family. Family means goodbye. (laughs) Right. And there's like so many other ways you could explain it, right? Like maybe he's just going on a vet or don't explain it at all. That'd be fine. Right, right. He's having an adventure or he has to go on a journey of discovery. (laughs) So the one episode of this I watch is there is an episode where Stitch reunites with adult Lilo. Yeah. And basically the abandonment was a misunderstanding, which again is so dumb. I don't even want to describe it. And it's also like. (laughs) How do you accidentally abandon someone, Lilo? Right. And it's it's handled really weirdly in the episode because I think they wanted to make it seem like she abandoned him on purpose, but then she doesn't. But they don't explain why she was acting earlier in the episode like she had abandoned him on purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's a really bleak idea. <laughs> right. When you really should just not acknowledge uh, Lilo, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, that was uh, apparently a very popular show. It had three seasons and two television specials. It ran from 2008 to 2015. I believe it had more episodes than Lilo and Stitch the series. Yes, in fact, it did. Then there's also Stitch and I. I being AI, a right. uh, Chinese name. Right. Uh, so it was a 13 episode limited series, which also treats all the American stuff as canon and takes place mm-hmm. after Leroy and Stitch, but does not treat the Japanese show as canon. 
<laughs> which is a bit of an odd line to draw. Yeah. But in this one, I don't think Lilo's abandoned Stitch. I think Stitch gets like lost. One of the things I saw says he got captured by some aliens. And then yes. when he escapes, he ends up landing in China. Yeah, he gets captured by some aliens who also figure out how to activate uh, his kaiju mode. He has a, a, what's called a metamorphosis program in this show, which basically turns him into a huge kaiju. I don't know. At least this one isn't trying to give a sad, sad ending to the Lilo story. At least it exists as its own thing. Right. I will say, though, both of these have English dubs and translations. Why not throw that on Disney Plus? Yeah, because uh, I would be interested in seeing more of them. You you can't watch them easily, but uh, you you can watch them. <laughs> I didn't watch any of Stitch and I because I was too busy trying to convince myself that Lilo and Stitch the series was okay. <laughs> there is also Stitch and the Samurai. Stitch and the Samurai is a manga series not related to the anime series. Which is about an alternate universe where Stitch crash lands in ancient Japan and meets a samurai. <laughs> and uh, I I looked at some of the panels online. It's really funny. I think intentionally so, although, you know, obviously it's a translated version, so it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. But like they have a hyper realistic art style for the samurai and all of the samurai stuff. Yeah. And then Stitch is in this super cartoony art style. So there's all these hilarious juxtapositions where it's a super serious samurai face saying something like, you are so cute and fluffy. (laughs) I want to nuzzle my face against you. (laughs) So Stitch and the Samurai uh, looks very funny. I'm kind of interested in reading it because I truly, from what I can tell, it's in on the joke. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it looks like the bottom corner of the pages might be a flip book, too. Yeah, something like that. I've sent mom some pictures as we're talking about it. But I honestly, of all the uh, international spinoffs, this one intrigues me the most because it's not just Lilo and Stitch in another country. It's something very different. It's Stitch and (laughs) a very serious adult man who is a soldier. (laughs) I I might uh, try to find a way to to read that, to be honest. I'm very intrigued by Stitch and the Samurai. And, of course, they've announced a Delarm, which they might not do, but if they do, it will be so bad, super terrible. The art style is a big part of what makes this movie great. I will say they even they talked about how the rounded art style, it makes you like the characters and the people. We like things that are round. Our eyes enjoy roundness, that round shapes. They make us happy. Spiky shapes are danger and bad, and round shapes are good and pleasant. And so the fact that even Stitch is got a lot of roundness to him, especially after he changes into his dog form, makes us like him and Lilo, even when they're badly behaved. <laughs> exactly. The art style softens a lot of the blow, which is really necessary for the specific tone this movie's trying to strike. If you saw live action Stitch, you'd get out the compound bow. Right. You'd be smacking him with a stick like Nani does. <laughs> let alone, let alone imagine a live action Jumba, <sighs> a live action Pleakley. That's upsetting. Not good. And that's before we get into the fact that these Delarms just ruin everything. But um, John M. Chu, who is actually a real director, was apparently going to be directing the live action 
uh, Lilo and Stitch movie, but he backed out probably due to getting a career and not needing <laughs> he does, to make. He has other things he's working on. <laughs> he's actually very successful. He doesn't need to make live action Lilo and Stitch. But you know, Chris Sanders is there to do the voice of Stitch whenever they do. <laughs> Pay me my price. <laughs> so, Mom, although it seems like a bit of a foregone conclusion, would you recommend this movie? And would you show it to your child when it came out in 2002? (laughs) Yes, I would recommend this movie. And yes, I would show it to a child. And apparently I would let my child watch it all the time and (laughs) imitate the bad behaviors. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But this movie is so good. And they should have learned that sometimes spending less money on a movie and focusing more on the, you know, good story gets you a good movie that will make you tons of money and be a beloved character who you can make money on for the rest of your company's natural existence. I know, I know. I mean, the ridiculous amount of Stitch merchandise they have. I was looking at a pin series that's got Lilo and Stitch dressed up as characters from other movies. So like Lilo is Belle and Stitch is the Beast. I saw one with Lilo as Snow White and Stitch as Grumpy. That one was pretty funny. You know, just so many things you can do with the characters. Yeah, they really should have kind of taken more from this movie. Like, you know, we're we're about to get into the CGI zone. There's only it's true. four 2D movies left. And this one shows that you don't need... In fact, realistic animation, again, would have worked against this movie. You don't need the hyper-realistic animation. You don't need the expensive CGI. CGI can be great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I mean, they trusted a unique artist with a unique vision to make a unique movie. And anyway, yes, I would recommend this movie and I'd (laughs) I'd show it to a child. I think most of the darkness of this movie goes over a child's head and uh, it's it's great. It's a legitimate masterpiece. Mm Mm-hmm. I wish Disney had more movies like this, but it's also kind of special that it is its own thing. Right. However, it is also the middle part of what I like to think of as Disney's unofficial sci-fi trilogy when they made three sci-fi movies and were like, never again. (laughs) Not quite never again, but close. Not quite never again. But anyway, we got to get out of this episode. Next week is Treasure Planet, Mom. What do you think of Treasure Planet? Mostly what I think about this one is, oh, Isaac loves that movie. (laughs) Isaac sure did. And Isaac still does, to be honest. And so tune in next week for me defending a movie that maybe only I like of people on Earth. (laughs) Treasure Planet. Until then, I'm me. And I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse who's cute and fluffy. (laughs) 